Good morning. The lectionary today continues to take us through the life of Jesus. Steph took us through the story, and we read it, and I'm going to take us through it again, John 2. It's a good, it's a good text. It's a fun text. It's about Jesus' goodness and joy, so I'm excited to preach a bit about it. Uh, two weeks ago, we got to see a rare snapshot of Jesus' life before his ministry as a boy who visited the temple. Last week, Dr. Pierce took us through his baptism, which is the start of his earthly ministry. And now today, we will read about his first miracle in John 2, when Jesus turns wine, well, water into wine at a wedding. So we're going we're gonna to progress in three steps. We're going to walk through the story again. Then we're going to think a little bit about the theology of the passage, what it has to say about who Jesus is. And then uh, finally, we'll think about what does this have to do with our present moment today? Think about some application. This, again, is a text about Jesus' goodness and joy. Uh, it takes place at a wedding, which makes it a fun passage. Weddings are, are parties. They're wonderful. Uh, they, they're beautiful. You know, people get really decorated. People dress up. They invite us to come and bring our best selves. They are full of friends and family and often people you don't know, but you're glad they're there anyway. It's just a good time to be together. Um, and the food is really great. Mints and appetizers and entrees and drinks and cake. And the wedding in John 2 was a Jewish wedding, which means this is a real party. I'm told that these lasted seven days in Jesus' day. That's seven days of feasting. And based on a little bit of archaeology and the text, it seems like the people that threw this party had some money. Cana was kind of, a, I guess, a rich little village and uh, um, the big stone water jars would have costed some amount of money. Uh, so, so a great party to be at. Uh, maybe they were friends of Jesus or his mother, maybe a relative. Um, in any case, Jesus' mother gets an invite, and then Jesus and the disciples get to go too. So they go. And we suspect that they participated in the festivities. You know, Jesus and his disciples during their ministry got a reputation for being partygoers. In Luke 5, some people comment on their behavior and say, well, John the Baptist's disciples fast and pray, and the Pharisees do the same, but your disciples go on and on eating and drinking. In Luke 7, in fact, Jesus and disciples, we find out we're called gluttons and drunkards, which I, I think that's probably unfair, right? I, we don't suspect that Jesus was irresponsible. Uh, but that was the sort of reputation that they got uh, for going to parties. So we just, at least we have to think, they didn't sit on the sidelines in chairs. Uh, no, they would have eaten, they would have talked, laughed, um, they would have drunk some wine. Well, let's talk about wine for a minute. A little bit about what wine has to do with our story or, with, or in scripture. You know, first we should say wine was a normal part of people's lives back then. Just the, kind of a staple part of their diet. There wasn't Starbucks. You couldn't get Coke in a can. It was one of your few options to drink besides milk and water. So most people drank wine day to day. Uh, they dilute it with water, so it wasn't very strong. But at a party, you might, uh, you might have a little bit stronger wine. In fact, this, this guest at a, our party, this master of the banquet, 
might have been, they did this in ancient days, they might have been in charge of controlling how strong the drink was. So they'd taste it and decide, oh, it's a little too strong, let's add some water, or oh, it's right, we should give it to the guests. So it's kind of quality and strength control. Uh, so so it's, it, was a, it was, you know, a normal part of their life, but also an important part of parties, too. Wine in scripture is sometimes a matter of caution, like the book of Proverbs encourages us not to, you know, linger over wine. It says, who has woe and sorrow and strife? Who has needless bruises or bloodshot eyes? It's people who linger over wine, it says. And overconsumption of wine ends up being an image of God's judgment. People who drink too much wine stagger and fall like someone who's drunk. But way more often in scripture, wine is a good thing. It's a symbol of joy and goodness. Uh, like Psalm 104 lists it as just some, a way that God sustains his creation and makes it good. It says that he, he makes wine to gladden human hearts, oil to make their faces shine, and bread to sustain their bodies. In Song of Songs, wine is an image for a man and a woman's relationship and their enjoyment of each other. So it's a good thing. And in the Old Testament, prophets, it shows, over, it shows up over and over again as an image for what life will be like in the new creation. Amos 9 says, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow from all the hills. That's what, that's what God says about his new creation. So it's a symbol of goodness and of joy. So when Jesus' mother in verse 3 in our story tells us that the wine has run out, it's bad news. The, the mood of the party is going to change. Uh, guests are going to you know, sober up. The party's going to come to an end. And that would be, I'm told, that's like a shameful thing. You know, you'd be the talk of the town if you ran out of wine at your own wedding. Uh, I grew up in a town of like 600 or 700 people. We had, you know, the newspaper has a column where they talk about what happened 100 years ago, 75 years ago, 50 years ago, 10 years ago. So if you want to know who visited the Twin Cities 10 years ago, you can find out. Or who got engaged 50 years ago, that's in the newspaper. So in small towns, people, people news travels fast and people remember it for a long time. But I don't, I don't know that that's so much the focus here. Yeah, it would have been a shameful thing, but I think what, what really is just being say, said is that this, the symbol of goodness and the source of the party was running dry. And so the party was coming to an end. I'm wondering if you ever feel that way about your own life and <laughs> like you're running out of wine. Like, you know, normally maybe life is good, you're enjoying things, there's things to celebrate, but sometimes life feels a little darker. Um, a lot of December felt that way to me. There were weeks where I felt like I had no wine. It was just where we were at, where I was at. Uh, even, you know, I love birding. I stopped going on my birding walks. <laughs> that was, you know, that was, that was December for me. Uh, and maybe, maybe some of you guys were there, maybe not. Um, that's just it, as we all go through dark seasons at different times in different ways. We'll get back to that. We'll talk more about that. But first, back to our story. When this party runs out of wine, just as Steph said, Jesus' mother steps up. And she says to Jesus, they have no more wine. Jesus replies, and Steph did a good job of bringing this out. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. It's not his time yet. All throughout scripture, Jesus is called the bridegroom. 
He calls himself the bridegroom. John the Baptist calls him the bridegroom. Um, the church is his bride, right? But this isn't Jesus's day to take center stage. At this wedding, he's just a guest. So he says it's not his hour to reveal his goodness and glory. And that's, that's something true of all weddings. I, it's something I find marvelous. As you go to a wedding, you don't have to look, figure out, you don't have to look long to figure out who is the bride and who's the groom, right? They kind of stick out. Chelsea and I got married in 2017. I think we, that was like our season of weddings. We had four or five other weddings we had to go to that, or we got to go to that, that year. Uh, many of them leading up to our wedding. I think one, two weeks beforehand or something like that. And, you know, we were on a high. We were glowing. We went as a couple. You know, we were fielding questions and all excited. But never did we steal the show, right? It's, it was always obvious who the true stars were. That moment comes when the bride walks down the aisle, everybody stands up, that's the focus. This wedding at Cana, Jesus is not the groom, he's a guest. So it's not his hour. But his mother insists in her own way. I like, Steph took a crack at this. I, to this day, don't know why Mary insisted. I don't know what she knew about Jesus, what she expected him to do, uh, if you guys have ideas, email me. I would be really interested to know what your take on what Mary was thinking. But she insists that Jesus does something. So just like Steph said, right, he fills up these six stone water jars, 20 to 30 gallons each. It's 150 gallons of water. John specifies they're not just regular jars. These are stone jars used for, Jew, for Jewish purification, for, for washing. Why, why stone? Well, if you read the Old Testament laws, if you had clay jars and they, got, they touched something impure, you had to smash them. So if you weren't careful, you'd have to buy new jars every so often. But stone jars are like a loophole. They don't ever become impure. So you could use them over and over and over again. And so in Jesus' day, when archaeologists dig, they find the stoneware everywhere, even at, at Cana, big jars like this. Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the background. That's why we have these big stone jars. So again, the servants fill them up with water. They draw a little water, bring it to the master of the banquet, and he tastes it. Not water, but wine. Listen to his response carefully. This is what he says. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink but you have saved the best until now. Jesus hasn't produced cheap wine. This is more like the wine you get down the street at DeSoto's. This is the good stuff, the best wine. 150 gallons of it, right? That's sort of like when he feeds the 5,000 by the Sea of Galilee and there's leftovers. That's, this is similar. There's, this is an abundance of wine. No chance they were going to run out again. Very few people, it seems, saw this miracle. It says Jesus knew about it. Obviously, he did it. Uh, his disciples, his mother, and then maybe the servants who drew the water. Uh, but otherwise, just a small group of people. And it says that the disciples who saw it put their faith in him. So that's, that's, the, that's the, the passage, the story. Now I want to think about what, is this, what does this say about Jesus? What is, what's the theology here of the passage? Well, John tells us that this is a sign that Jesus did. It's not just a miracle or a wonder. He's not just showing off. 
This is teaching us something about who Jesus is. It's a little unique. He's not healing people. He's not meeting people's needs. He's not resurrecting Lazarus. This is all stuff he does later. Uh, He's just keeping a party going. Uh, So it's it's unique. What does that teach us about about Jesus? (laughs) I think in short, what we're seeing is that in Jesus, when we have Jesus, we have what's best, what's really, truly good. Jesus brings the best wine. In a sense, he is the best wine. You know, all that came before in the Old Testament was good. All the apostles and saints that have come since are noteworthy, but Jesus is what is best. Let's think more about these, these jars, right? They're for Jewish purification. These were tools for the people of God to purify themselves, just as the Old Testament commanded. And why, why would they purify themselves? What's the point? Why, why do you purify yourself? You wash your hands before you eat, right? Or you take a bath before you go to bed. Or you use hand sanitizer before you visit a friend nowadays. That's, that's why, you part- why you purify yourself, is to prepare for someone or something. The Jews and the Israelites washed to prepare for God's presence, either because they were going to the temple or because, Jesus, or because God was coming to be with them. That's the point, is the purification is preparing them for God's presence. And who is Jesus but God made manifest in flesh? He is God with us, come to be with his people at last. So now the time of purification is over. Jesus is here. The time for celebration has come. He He doesn't break the jars. He doesn't insult them or dismiss them as something bad. He fills them with wine. So this is, this is, he's saying, this is the time to celebrate because I'm here. Okay, so that's, that's where we get that Jesus is, we got, he's good, he's bringing joy to this party, he's announcing that the best is, is here. But it's not the full story, right? We still have to deal with his words that he said his hour has not yet come. We get a glimpse of his goodness at Cana, but we don't get the full picture. When is his hour, right? When do we really see Jesus' love? When do we really see his goodness? His hour comes at his crucifixion and resurrection. Later in the gospel, John 12, we're leading right up to that, to that, to his death, and he announces, my hour has come. It's time to glorify the Father's name. And so that, that is Jesus' hour. So yeah, we get a glimpse of Jesus' goodness here, in this party, but really we know Jesus' goodness fully there at, at Easter. So yeah, we're in Epiphany now, or the season right after Epiphany. Already Jesus is pointing us to his, his death and resurrection. So Jesus is good. We see that here at Cana. We're going to see it even more fully in the weeks to come. And what, is this, what does this passage then have to say to us in our present moment? You know, really what it communicates is what we get to hear each week in this season in the benediction. Every week we get to hear this this statement. May God the Son, who transformed water into wine at the wedding feast at Cana, transform your lives and make glad your hearts. May the Son of God make glad your hearts. 
Have you ever watched, I'm, I'm sure you have, it's a dumb question. Have you ever watched Bob Ross? <laughs> have you watched his painting show? Um, I, my introduction or my experience with Bob Ross was on Sundays when I was a child, uh, if I got sick. Then I got to stay home from church and, and uh, PBS played Bob Ross. And so that was my experience with Bob Ross. Um, he, starts, he starts with, usually, with a white, cheery background, right? And then he paints over that. His job is to paint in shadows and darkness and patches of color. Okay, so he starts cheery and brings in the darkness. At other times, though, there's a few episodes where he starts with a black canvas. And then his job is to work in the light, to somehow bring in light. And that's, that, that's a little bit like the Christian life. Sometimes it feels like things are great and bright and cheery, and I have to practice confession and lament and try fasting. That's sometimes what the Christian life is like. Uh, sometimes it's the other way around, where things feel dark and hard, and the thing we need to cultivate is joy. It's, it's an interesting thing to think of, joy as a discipline. But that, that's what we're called to in a season like Epiphany. It can be hard. I remember in 2018, uh, maybe you remember this, Ash Wednesday fell on Valentine's Day. And Chelsea and I had just gotten married. This was our first Valentine's Day as a couple, or as a married couple. So we went to, Ash, we went to the service, put on our solemn face, we got our ashes, and then we went home and ate ice cream and chocolate. <laughs> so I'm not sure that was like our most disciplined start to the Lenten season. That can be hard. And when we're in a darker season, sometimes it's the joy that's, that's the hard thing to bring in. But may God make glad our hearts, right? Now, not, not all of us may be in a dark season right now. Um, I know that a lot of you have really great things you're celebrating. I know of at least one pregnancy, graduations coming up, some promotions at work, a new job I heard about recently. Um, anniversaries, a lot, a lot to be thankful for and glad about. And so some of you may be with that, that bright, cheery background. You might feel like you have a lot of wine to celebrate with right now. And sometimes church doesn't feel like a place where we can do that safely. Sometimes it does. Redeemer's not so bad at this. But sometimes, I don't know, like, have you ever done, like, prayer requests in a group? Sometimes it feels like the, the goal is to just share the worst thing that's going on in your life. But church is also a place where we can be joyful. And so if you're, if you're happy right now and you're joyful, I want, I want you to, to know that this is a place where you can clap your hands and shout for joy. We, wanna, we want to, as a church, celebrate with you. For some of us, though, um, it might feel like a darker season, like there's no wine to be had. And I wish I had a lot of things that you could do. I don't have so many steps for you to take, just the first step. And that is, if that feels like you, if you feel like in a dark season, then let's follow Jesus' mother's example and just come to Jesus and say, this is where we're at. We have no more wine. And you know, where do we find wine in a dark season? It's Jesus. You know, whatever is going on in your life, whether it's good or bad, Jesus is our true source of joy. He is the best wine. So I would encourage you, whether you're in a good time or a hard time, that you drink deeply of Jesus in this season. Drink deeply in your prayers. Go to, join a community group or go to community group. Drink d- deeply in that fellowship. Drink deeply in the scriptures. And drain your communion cup 
Last week, we got to talk about baptism. Eucharist is, is thanksgiving. That's what that, that means. It's, it's, you know, a solemn time to think about Jesus' death. It's also a celebration of what he's done for us. Uh, and it anticipates the great wedding feast in the new creation. So, so drink deeply of Jesus there too. Jesus is the good God made manifest in flesh, and he's present here with us now in the spirit. See his goodness at Cana, and see his goodness even more fully on the cross and in his resurrection. And let your hearts be glad. Amen.